It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Love them or loathe them, the royal family are never far from the news. Particularly this week, with the imminent publication of yet another book that claims to reveal all. But whether the House of Windsor is creating significant moments in the history of our nation, or just endless gossip and fascination around the world, for the Times, one man has been there to cover it all. It's a funny job being a royal correspondent because it's a job that no one ever wants. It's not like being political editor or something like that, where, you know, there's a deputy out there who wants your job and there's a number three who wants his job. For 15 years, Valentine Lowe has reported on royal weddings and royal funerals. He's been on royal visits across the country and beyond to Australia, Bhutan, the Galapagos, India, Kenya. But now... He's retiring. You are there to be a proper reporter. You're there to report the proper stories. You're not there to do their PR for them or to write what goes down well with them. I mean, it's nice if you have friendly relations. Of course it is. But you're not there to be their friend. As Valentine leaves the Times, he takes us behind the scenes of what it's really like reporting on Britain's most famous family. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Confessions of a Royal Writer. I'm Valentine Lowe. I write about the royal family for The Times. Does it feel weird saying royal correspondent? I'm always phobic about doing that because, very strictly speaking, I'm not the royal correspondent. My job title pompously and poetically, is writer. And I've always loved that. So I <laughs> refuse to call myself royal correspondent, even though I effectively am, because I love the idea that and the Times is writer. Well, I'm sure you'll still be a writer at the end of the week, but you won't be the Times' writer on all things royal. No. How does that feel? It feels very strange, because I've loved the Times. It's been such fun and such a privilege to work here. It's the world's greatest newspaper. And it has been, as they say, quite a journey covering the roles. Because when I started, they were really quite dull. I mean, there was not, it was one of those fallow periods. We'd got over all the Diana years and there wasn't an awful lot going on. The most exciting thing was William getting engaged to Kate, which, you know, in terms of excitement... Big moment. It's a big moment, but it's also quite a bland moment. It's sort of, you know, 
the trajectory of history moving on. <laughs> Look, nice young heir to the throne finds nice young girl. It's not a shock and it's not a surprise. And what's it like when you're suddenly assigned to the royal beat? The perception of people from the outside is that, you know, you you have to be terribly posh to do it. You have to know what fork to hold. Uh, you have to be able to sort of get on with the royals. You have to be interested in love. And, and actually, none of that's true. Um, <laughs> the royal media pack is full of people who's, I mean, there are some people who are quite keen on the royal family, broadly it goes from neutrality to utter contempt. And the idea that somehow we're socially acceptable to the royal family is, is also a non-starter. We're just, we're the scum of the scum, you know, really. <laughs> they, they'd rather we disappeared. But we're, we, we are a necessary evil as far as they're concerned. So, yeah, they put up with us and occasionally pretend to like us, but not really. <laughs> Did they ever pretend to like you? Well, Camilla was always the friendliest one because she's normal. I mean, she hasn't been brought up in this bubble. And I remember taking a very sort of conscious decision when I was first doing this and was first coming across Camilla. I took a conscious decision to, just to treat her as if she was a friend of my mother-in-law's. So my mother-in-law lives in Wiltshire, so as we're not that far from where Camilla's home is. And I just thought, well, just pretend she's one of my mother-in-law's friends. <laughs> and so you treat her with some friendliness, but not over-familiarity. And it kind of works splendidly. And I, you know, but I do remember once when Downton Abbey was a big thing, and I, when I wasn't writing about royals, I wrote other things. I wrote a piece about Downton Abbey. There'd been a bit of a shocking episode. Some character had died, and I made a reference to this. And I did say in my story, you know, spoiler alert, just in case you haven't seen the episode yet. Anyway, a few weeks passed, and I was on tour with Charles and Camilla in Australia, and I was doing one of the first jobs. I think it was in Queensland. And Camilla came into the room where we were, and she sort of made a slight diversion to come over and talk to me. And I said, oh, look, how nice Camilla's kind of say hello, how lovely. <laughs> she likes you. And she came over to me and said, Valentine, you totally ruined my Downton. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, I suppose you get to see the royals, you know, not just the clips that are on TV. You see them the rest of the time, the downtime. You sort of see, you see them up close when they're doing these events. And that's how you get those wonderful sides. What was that like? I mean, what are they like as characters? What you did is you'd get used to and you're quite good at discerning their varying moods. So Harry could be quite grumpy, but he also could be very keen and funny and up for it. I always remember when we were in Jamaica with Harry and he was due to sort of do something with Usain Bolt and they staged a running race and then Harry basically distracted him and ran to the finish line. It was, it was a fantastic moment. England's Prince Harry just couldn't wait. When he had a chance to race the Olympic gold medal sprinter Usain Bolt in Jamaica today. And the prince wasn't above a little trickery to get a head start. Bolt has asked for a rematch during this summer's London Olympics. I always remember with the Queen, the late Queen Elizabeth, just by the subtlest of signs, you could know if she was in one of her Miss Piggy moods or whether she was... Miss Piggy moods? <laughs> Tell us about those. Well, you just had her Miss Piggy face on and she would go through the motions, but, you know, she obviously was not going to do anything over and above because of what she'd been doing for decades. You can't really continue to be interested all the time <laughs> when you've been doing it for so long. No. But other times, if there was a horse around, if there was a horse around and if she had a carrot on her or a mint or whatever and she could feed the horse, you know, then she was 
happy as Larry. But you never know how they're going to take to you. I mean, you do have to sort of follow them off to far-flung places, which can't always be easy. And some of those places, it can be quite controversial. You know, people suddenly start talking about republicanism more recently. Tell us about New Zealand in particular. New Zealand, ah, yes. So we arrived in New Zealand and this TV crew was following us around, surreptitiously filming us, which was oh, sort wow. of quite annoying, quite cheeky. Not filming the royals, but filming you. Yeah, they'd be filming the royals too, but they were also filming us, possibly even eavesdropping our conversations. And I did have a full and frank exchange of views with them. And I should explain to them this was not what they were going to carry on doing. It got a little testy. Anyways, that all passed off fine. thought no more of it. Then the next morning, they asked me if I'd given them an interview. It was a perfectly straightforward interview about the royals, the press, whatever. And at the end of it, the TV reporter said, um, is there anything else you'd like to say? And I just thought to myself, this is a strange way of conducting interviews. You're meant to think of the questions. <laughs> but uh, I said, I guess out of devilry as much as anything, I said, well, I do find it strange that New Zealand continues to have a head of state from the other side of the world. <laughs> and her eyes, her eyes popped out on stalks. I think basically she was a hurried signal to the cameraman to carry on filming. And we proceeded to talk about that for about five minutes. And, you know, I was perfectly fine with it. And she, she did say, do you think you should have a republic in the UK? And I said, no, not particularly. I'm, I'm fine with the royal family being in the UK, but I just can't understand why you have this person from the other side of the world. Anyway, I assume that's not what they were expecting to hear. It was, certainly was not what they were expecting. The interesting thing was a lot of people assumed that the palace would be furious. I was going to say, they, does that get you in trouble? They couldn't care less, really? really. I think they regard us as beyond hope, beyond saving. Um, as long as we don't write any lies or think there's outrageous untruth, they just let us get on with it. So the fact that I think New Zealand shouldn't necessarily have the roles as the head of state, they took that on the chin. Wow. And is that the palace that takes it on the chin or, or do the royals themselves take it on the chin? I mean, how much interaction do you have with them and do they all, do they all get to know you? You have not an awful lot of interaction, but some. I mean, you know, some of them know you and, and will occasionally dress, address you by name. But sometimes you're not quite on their radar. The Queen and Prince Philip went to Australia. That must have been in the autumn of 2011, I think. We had a strong suspicion it was going to be her last tour of Australia, which it, indeed it turned out to be. Mm. And so you followed them around Australia for sort of whatever it was, 10 days or something, a week. And then a few small number of weeks later, there was a reception at Buckingham Palace. Reception being posh, palace speak for a drinks party. They can't call it a drinks party, they have to call it a reception. And this was for the media in anticipation of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And there was one of those receiving lines where you all queue up and you shake hands with the Queen and you shake hands with Prince Philip. So I joined my place in the queue and got to the front. Some stentorian-voiced flunky says, you know, Mr. Valentine Lowe of the Times. You go forward and you say, how do you do, ma'am? And she says, yeah, how do you do? And really nothing much more than that. And then you go on to Philip and another flunky says, Mr. Valentine Lowe of the Times. And at this point, Philip um, perked up. He says, ah, he says, ah, the Times, what do you do for them? Uh, I thought, uh, what? I've just been following you around Oz for the last two weeks. You didn't notice me ever? <laughs> Or, or like I, the decade before I, that. <laughs> I, what I wanted to say was I follow you around, you old fool, but I, <laughs> I didn't put it in quite those terms. 
<laughs> he probably would have appreciated that. <laughs> Maybe. Coming up, Val explains how he broke the story about Megan and bullying and how living in limbo outside the Lindo wing led him to become, briefly, an international songwriting hit. That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeeda Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In the role of Royal Correspondent, you have to be there for every big moment in life. And sometimes that can be extraordinarily exciting. And sometimes it can be a little bit dull, I suppose. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the very start of life. You're there for the long days of excruciating births. Yeah, babies. I mean, <laughs> tell me about the, that. The ritual, the ritual of royal women having babies. I mean, I had a lot of sympathy when Meghan refused to participate in the the great Lindo Wing, which is the private maternity wing of the St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. What that involves is a pack, a huge pack. It's like, you know, 150 people, something like that, reporters, TV crews, photographers, and all the kind of royal fans, we call them. Um, it's a circus. And, you know, they give birth and we wait for some palace functioning to come out and inform us, write it all up. And then you hang around a bit more and then eventually they will come out and you have this excruciating thing of the mother sort of caked in makeup. She's just given birth. The last thing she wants to do is is see anyone, let alone 150 (laughs) members of the media. It's cruel and unusual punishment. But before that, before all that happens, there's the waiting. You wait outside the hospital. And if you're a TV person, you have to stay there all the time because you never know what's going to happen. If you're you do a have these international report, crews. You have uh, a yeah. helicopter overhead. Yeah, yeah. All these kind of big anchors from ABC <laughs> and CBS and NBC and all that. Lot. Uh, they're all there looking incredibly coiffed and well-groomed, <laughs> whatever ghastly hour it is. But it's just it's a long wait. And even for a print reporter such as myself, you were there, you'd pop in most days and it was a long... 
long, tedious wait. Uh, well, plenty more to come from here, of course. None of it news, uh, because that'll come from Buckingham Palace. But that won't stop us. We'll see you later. Rachel. <laughs> Simon, glad to hear it. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Simon McCoy there for us. <laughs> and I remember when Kate was pregnant with George. It just went on forever and ever. And you'd go stir crazy. There's no other serious work you can do. because <laughs> It's the only story in town and it's happened. And I got driven to such distraction that I ended up writing a kind of a kind of ditty about it. And, you know, some of your... Oh, we oh, have to hear this. Uh, some of your older viewers might remember the famous footage of Bob Dylan performing Subterranean Homesick Blues, I uh, think behind the back of the Savoy Hotel. And he had these giant cue cards with the lyrics. Anyway, I could have wrote this this kind of ditty, like the, the sun, I think, yeah, I think it was the sun. The sun had set up a baby cam. So it was a camera <laughs> focused on the front door of the window wing. And I wrote this ditty and I call it the baby cam blues. <laughs> Basically all about how bored I was waiting. And I think it, uh, Come on, we need a rendition. I, I, I mean, I, I just I remember little bits of it. Uh, there was one bit that said, woke up this morning, looked out for some news. There wasn't any. I've got the baby cam blues. <laughs> And I think the definitive couplet, she's late, I hate the great Kate Wait. <laughs> it's poetry. I don't know why it didn't get a Pulitzer. I had these huge artist sketch pads and I got the art department of the Times to write out in their finest writing the, the words that could be seen on, on a TV camera. So I could have performed it as well like that silently for the baby cam. Then I had all these networks coming up to me because there's nothing else going on, nothing happening, nothing doing. And they had a lot of time to fill. And they had a lot of time, so I, I made international news. It was <laughs> it was absolutely astonishing. In my copy, I did describe it as um, this effort as a primeval cry of despair, expressing the existential angst of the media professional deprived of his very reason for being. Or, to put it another way, there wasn't much going on. But anyway, <laughs> it passed a day, man being. It Valentine, passed a day. There are so many reasons we're going to miss you. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of them. It hasn't always been just the jolly stories, though. I mean, you did have all the drama, the high drama of Harry and Meghan and Megxit. Oh, God, yeah, Megxit. What it. was that like to report on? That was kind of crazy. We knew things were up because the Sun had their famous front page saying they're off, but nothing had been confirmed. We didn't know what was going on. And the next day, I'd done my work for the day and I was on the tube and I was going home. And I just happened to be reading the paper on my iPad. And on the tube, after about two stops, this thing pops up. I could see a message pop up. I couldn't read the whole of it, but it just said, statement by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I thought, oh my God. And I literally ran off the tube at the next stopping as Waterloo, ran across to the other platform, jumped onto the next train going back to the office <laughs> and arrived rather breathlessly. And I then didn't stop working for a week. It was wow. crazy times. I think I had the front page five days in a row. It was sort of, yeah. It was an extraordinary time. Yeah. I mean, when that statement popped up, did you did you have a hint it was coming? Did you think they're off? Well, look, we obviously knew they may well be off. They were probably off. Funnily enough, some months earlier, 
the royal correspondents had been having lunch. And for a game, we wrote down what we thought was going to happen to Harry and Meghan. We thought, you know, <laughs> something could happen. We didn't know what the future held at all. I love the games at one of these royal correspondent lunches. And I, <laughs> I, I claim the prize for this. I wrote that they were going to go off to Canada and Harry was going to become the Duke of Vancouver. <laughs> which Not far off. Not far off. You also reported on some of the bullying allegations around them. Was that quite difficult. I mean, when you're reporting on the royal family so closely all the time and suddenly you're reporting on things that they really probably don't love being out there, is there a sense, I mean, what happens the next time you see Prince Harry? That really is the last thing on your mind. Yeah. You are there to be a proper reporter. You're there to report the proper stories. You're not there to do their PR for them or to write what goes down well with them. Your only concern is to make sure it's right and to make sure you don't get sued. And of course, Megan at the time was suing the Mail on Sunday about a case which she eventually won, about invasion of privacy and breach of copyright. So when I started working on that story, I worked hard with my news desk and also crucially with the newspaper's lawyer to make sure we got it right. And we spent a long time getting it right. And in fact, there was one point when I thought the story was probably ready to go. And the then editor, John Witherow, at the last moment said, no, we're going to hold off a bit. And I was furious at the time. And my my main source for the story was furious and upset. They were having a very difficult time because it was very difficult mm. being involved with this as a source. But with hindsight, John Witherow is completely correct. We waited about three or four more days and I did some more firming up of the story and it was a good thing. We wanted to make it copper bottom, that story, and we did. And the proof of the pudding is in the, eating, in the sense that we were never sued. Yeah. Angry lawyer letters before publication, lengthy angry letters before publication, silence afterwards. That's when you know you've got it right. Yeah. Was it difficult, though? I mean, when did, did you have to see Harry and Meghan again? And was there any sort of sense of, we read your story and we didn't much like it? In a sense, I don't really care what they think. I'm not there for them to be my friend. Yeah. I mean, it's nice if you have friendly relations. Of course it is. It's always nice if you have friendly relations in your role, but you're not there to be their friend. And for a royal correspondent, I mean, that was a moment of real high drama, a lot going on that you don't really expect normally. Yeah. The other moment you must be dreading for years is the big deaths, and they <sighs> all happened on your watch. Yeah. What was that like? Well, the royal family, they do have, I mean, I, I'm absolutely convinced this is deliberate. They do have a habit of dying at the most inconvenient moment possible. <laughs> is it usually when you're about to go on holiday? <laughs> When Diana died, I was on a press freebie. I was working for the Evening Standard then. And I was on a press freebie in the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey. And I think it took me about 24 hours to get back. It was uh, ah, it was not easy. the biggest and, story. And we had an inkling that something had happened. But it was just a garbled message that someone on the boat had got. We were out of phone signal. So we couldn't ah. ring anyone to stop. We were off the coast of Turkey. We, all, we, could, we could get Greek radio. So we could have listened to Greek radio. Of course, none of us spoke a word of Greek. We did hear the words Diana, Tragedia and Catastrophe. So I kind of figured it was probably true. That's when you've got to get off the boat. That's when you have to get off the boat, yeah. But when Prince Philip died, I was on a day off, of course, because you're always on a day off. And I have an allotment and my wife and I had been collecting bark chips for the allotment and... I got this phone call from a source of mine saying, 
basically informing me that Philip was dead. And literally, I just told my wife, drive home now. <laughs> but the good thing there was that I did have the tip in advance. So I was able to tell the office, the news uh. desk, about 25 minutes before the official announcement that announcement was coming and I earned the undying gratitude of the news desk just not write anything not publish anything but just to get everything ready for when it does come made a huge difference and then when the Queen died I was on a week off and I'd written a book recently uh, called Courtiers and I was recording the audio book so I'd been for the previous three days in a recording studio in Soho in some basement. And that lunchtime, I had happened to surface and check my emails for some reason. And there was an email saying that the Queen's doctors were concerned for health. I thought, oh my goodness. Okay. But I hadn't quite finished doing the recording. And so I had to, I had to ring into the office, say, okay, look, well, she's still alive. I will be with you shortly. But there's something I just have to finish first. And I'm not sure the news desk was terribly happy about that but I, I assured them I'd be quick so I had two more chapters to read and literally I just raced through those chapters I did blah 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 the end will that do thanks okay I'm <laughs> off now but then just jumped into a taxi and went to go and work and then yeah didn't stop working for the next 10 days it was an extraordinary extraordinary period but also I've been dreading it hmm. I really had been dreading it because I thought it was going to be awful but it was exhausting work, but also an amazing moment to be part of. I'm incredibly proud to have sort of played my part in it. And the front page I wrote that day, funny if it was the front page that I'd started writing three years earlier. So I had the bones of it. Then, of course, you tweak it and update it, you make it relevant, and you made it correct, and you make it fresh. Seeing that you wrote the story of the Queen's death, and it's on the front page of the Times, this historic event, it's sort of, they can't take that away from you. What will you miss the most about being the royal correspondent at the Times? It's a funny job being a royal correspondent because it's a job that no one ever wants. No one else in the office is, you know, snapping really? your heels trying to get the job. It's not like being political editor or something like that where, you, you know, there's a deputy out there who wants your job and there's a number three who wants his job. In many ways, people think it's a faintly ridiculous job. But also there are times when you are the centre of attention. Whether it's Prince Andrew, whether it's Mexic, whether it's the death of the Queen, suddenly you are it. You are the absolute focus of the newspaper and you're the focus of what going, is going on. And it's hard work and it's gruelling. I mean, I was completely wrung out by the end of the sort of 10 days of the Queen's death. But it's, it's amazing to be part of. And in one way or another, those tend to be the big moments in our in our history, in our nation's story too. Yeah. And you're right there at the heart of writing them. First draft of history and all that. <laughs> We're all going to miss you a hell of a lot. Do the royals know you're leaving? I mean, do you get some sort of a, a leaving do with them? Do they give you a gold watch for your service? No, <laughs> no, they don't. But I was recently on the state visit to Kenya and at the end of it, Charles and Camilla came to the back of the plane to say hello to all of us, which they do. And they've been well briefed that it was both my last tour and also Nick Witchell of the BBC's last tour. So, you know, it was nice. I had a nice little chat with them about it. And they sort of said, oh, what are you going to do? You know, so on and so forth. For a brief moment, they acknowledged my existence. And that was nice. <laughs> Were they quite jealous of the idea of being able to retire? <laughs> yeah, I think Camilla was particularly jealous of the, the fact that she, 
<laughs> we could retire, she can't. <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, departing writer for The Times, Valentine Lowe. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producers were Kate Ford and Fiona Leach, and sound design was by Hannah Farrell. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.